Psalm 95, verse 1. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into His presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to Him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all, lowercase g, gods. In His hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, As on the day of Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work for 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. That's God's word. Now, I want to take a break today from our study that we've been in for the last several weeks on the seven letters of Revelation. Uh, We'll take a break this week. We'll pick back up next week. And I want us to consider the question this morning of what is worship? Uh, I mean, when somebody uses the word worship, what do you think? How do you define that word? What does it mean to worship? What does it mean to be a worshiper of God? Uh, Saeed Qutb was an Egyptian who moved to America to attend college. And while he was in America, I mean, he thought he was coming to this land of opportunity, this land of the free, this place where people, there was an exchange of ideas and there was a vibrancy. And he got here and he attended university and he was shocked, though, with the way that he saw Americans approaching life. He just got this sense that Americans were superficial. And he it upset him the way that American college students just didn't seem to wrestle with the great philosophical and existential questions that have been present in all of humanity. All these questions, he said he felt like American students just weren't concerned with these great questions. They weren't concerned with capital T truth. They were just concerned with materialism and entertainment and celebrities and whatever. And he looked around and he saw Americans consumed with greed and violence and rampant sexual immorality. And he was stunned because he thought that America was supposed to be this place of great freedom and truth and liberty and excitement. And he thought, well, maybe this is just the college students, maybe um, maybe in the church. I can find a remnant of Americans that weren't consumed with triviality. And he thought he would be able to walk into a church in the United States and find people that weren't trivial people, find people that were consumed with the great things of life in a place where people were devoted to the worship, worship of a transcendent creator God and willing to consider and wrestle with the deep questions. In his heart and in his mind, he wanted Christianity to offer something more. But this is what he said when he when he went to church. He said, if the church is a place for worship in the entire Christian world, in America, it is for everything but worship. You will find it difficult to differentiate between it and any other place. They go to church for carousal and enjoyment, or as they call it in their language, fun. Most who go there do do so out of a necessary social tradition 
and is a place for meeting and to spend a nice time. This is not only the feeling of the people, but it is also the feeling of the men of the church and its ministers. So he went to the church looking to find Christians devoted to a deep worship of their God. He, looked, he went to the church looking for people that weren't consumed with trivial things. And he didn't find that. He found within the, whatever church he visited, he found people that were just as shallow, just as trivial, and just as uninterested in, transcend, in a transcendent God than the people outside of the church walls. And he found the church to be a superficial gathering or a social gathering for superficial people. They claimed that they, 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 the God that they claimed to worship, at least to cut up, did not affect their lives in any significant way. In his mind, they were just as trivial as everyone else. And it disgusted him. And his disdain for America grew and his disdain for Christianity was birthed. And he spent the rest of his life writing books and articles and propaganda against America, against American culture, and against Christianity. And his writings became the foundational text in the formation of Al-Qaeda. Mark Sayers, a cultural commentator and pastor, notes that Cudub noted one of the most important but rarely talked about shifts in religion in American culture. And that is the shift from worship as devotion to worship as entertainment. And when I asked a moment ago, what is worship? Many of us thought may have thought in your mind the definition of worship. You thought that's what we do on Sundays at 1030. We go to worship. It's something that we sit in and we, we consume and watch. Or some of you think, you may think worship is a genre of music. You know, there's radio stations. There's the country station, the hip-hop station. There's the worship station. We think worship is music. And in American Christianity, worship has become something that we consume. Not something that shapes every aspect of our lives. When we think of worship, we think it's music or we think it's something that we sit through. It's a service. But the tr- and when you read through the scriptures, worship is a way of life. Worship is what we do with our lives and what we ascribe worth to. See, our worship matters and how we worship matters. And Psalm 95, I believe, helps us to know what worship is and how we can do it. In, uh, in Latin... Or in you know, traditional Christianity, Psalm 95 is known as the Venite, which means O come in Latin. And from the earliest days of the church, this psalm has been used as a call to worship. It's been used as the scripture that the church would read as they gather together to remind them what they are there to do. It's, it's been used as a guide for worship, but it also encourages us as individuals to worship. It teaches us how to worship, to go beyond triviality when we come to worship God. Psalm 95 teaches us how to do that. This is a great, you know, some of you, I think you like to print out Bible verses and put them on your mirror. This is a great psalm to put on your bathroom mirror because it can, it can set the tone for your day. A start to your day, something that can guide your life. And this psalm, I think, shows us, among many other things, at least three things. One, it shows us what worship is. It shows us whom we worship. And it shows us what worship does, what it brings to our lives. So what worship is, the nature of worship, so to speak. It says, oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. 
In his hand are the depths of the earth, the height of the mountains are his. Also the sea is his because he made it and his hands, they formed the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Now, here's how I want to define the word worship this morning. A definition that I think Psalm 95 leads us to. Worship is ascribing ultimate value to something that engages all of our emotions, all of our being. Worship is ascribing value to something that engages our entire self. See, one thing that you pick up on very quickly in this psalm is that worship is not a single act. Worship is not something you do once a week. Worship is not something you do, you know, one, one thing at a time. It is what is happening in your heart, soul, mind, and strength when you ascribe value to something. When you love something with your heart and soul and mind and strength, that is worship. Notice in verse 1, we're commanded to sing. Think of all the ways, all the emotions that are coming uh, together in Psalm 95. In verse 1, it says we're commanded to sing, to make a joyful noise. Worship is loud. We worship with our soul, our emotions. We sing. We're told to come into his presence with thanksgiving. Gratitude is a form of worship. When our hearts are moved by something and we're thankful and grateful for it. Verse 6 says, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord. See, reverence, devotion, discipline, action, that's a form of worship. Worship When we love God with our wills. It says, verse 7, it says, hear his voice. To listen is a form of worship. To reflect, to contemplate, that is a form of worship, meditation. And see, when you hear that definition, when you think, oh, it's, it's being grateful for something, it's, it's being something worth shouting about, it's something worth giving reverence to, it's something worth listening to, you realize that we're all worshipers of something. We all have things in our lives that make us sing. It might be a chant for your favorite soccer team. It might be a song, a band that you go to their concert and you want to sing out loud because you love their music. There are things also in our lives that make us grateful and thankful. That's a form of worship. We all have things that we're grateful for. I'm grateful for lots of things. We have things in our lives that we revere. There are things that we respect. There are things that we fear. That's a form of worship. We have things that cause us to reflect and things that cause us to consider. I mean, when you stand at the ocean and you, I mean, you can't, like, you know, it's hard to feel arrogant when you're standing and looking at the ocean. It's a place where you're, you're prone to reflect. And, we, and the, the wor- that's a form of worship in the sense that we, our reflection there. And we all ascribe value to things in our lives, whether it's career or finances, relationships, our family, our health, our hobbies. We ascribe value to those things. And in some sense, we give worship to those things. And that's not bad. It's not bad to ascribe value to things. There are many things in my life that cause me to sing. There are many things that cause me to reflect and respect and be grateful. I was on vacation this last week. I was with my family. We did all of those things. I ascribe great value to my family. But I believe that the first step in living a life of faithful discipleship to Jesus, what is worship? What is worship of God? It is ascribing ultimate value to that which is most valuable. Most of us, many of us, we ascribe value to many things, but where we get out of line 
is when we ascribe ultimate value to things that aren't ultimately valuable. It's okay to ascribe worth to your career, but to put ultimate value and ultimate worth in your career is building, Jesus says, is building your house on quicksand. It won't last because your career can be taken from you. We are called to ascribe ultimate value to that which is most valuable. Or one of the things I've said before is as Christians, to worship means that we give weight to that which is most weighty in our lives. In the very next Psalm, Psalm 96, it says, Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. And that word glory is the Hebrew word kavod. Actually, chevod, but that grosses people out when you, you make that noise. And kevod means weightiness. The word glory in the Hebrew means weightiness. And weight, when you think of what weight is, weight is what separates the substantial from the insignificant, the real from the unreal. Let me explain. When, some, when a rock or something heavier than water falls into a pool of water, what happens to the water? The water gets rearranged in all sorts of ways. So like I said, I was just on vacation uh, last week. We were at my parents' house with my kids. And my parents have one of those little like small pools on their patio. And I was sitting there eating my dinner and my five-year-old daughter, you know, out of nowhere before I could react, all I hear is cannonball. And she runs and she jumps. And all of a sudden that burger (laughs) that we had grilled on the grill was now soaked because my daughter had cannonballed into the pool. What happened? She weighs, you know, 40 pounds or whatever she weighs. She weighs more than that water. And when she cannonballed into that water, what happened to the water? It got rearranged completely. It went all over the place. See, when you ascribe value to something in your life that is weightier than you, it will have the ability to rearrange your entire life. This is why people will often say, I want to be a part of something bigger than myself. Well, why? Because when you're committed to something larger and weightier than you, it rearranges you. It shapes you into something new. There is not one aspect of your life that goes unchanged when you allow something greater than you to come into your life. In the same way, when God comes into our lives, everything ought to be rearranged. A life that is committed to ascribing glory to God, a life that gives glory to God because He is most glorious, will be shaped, rearranged, and refashioned into His image. And we all give weight to something in our lives. And whatever we give weight to shapes who we become. And so the question I have for you is, who are you becoming and why? You're becoming someone. And the reason you're becoming that someone is because there's something in your life that you've given weight to. It might be the approval of people. It might be a promotion in a career. It might be the accumulation of wealth. It might be popularity. It might just be peace of mind. It might be comfort. It might be whatever. You are becoming someone. And who you are becoming, the person you are becoming is dependent on the things that you give weight to in your life. And if you want to become conformed into the image of Christ, you must give weight to that which is most weighty, and that is God himself. Worship is having your heart, soul, mind, and strength affected and rearranged by God himself. So that is what worship is. Now, to whom do we worship? See, the tension that we experience when it comes to worship is that when we fail to worship correctly, and we all do at times, when we fail to value Jesus as the most valuable thing in our lives, when we do this, 
When we disregard the transcendent, we become superficial, flat, trivial people. We give, we often, when we ascribe glory to something that is greater than Christ, we will become flat and superficial and trivial people. We give our passion. We are so easily seduced by trivial things. We give our passions. We give our worship to things like our phones, our football teams, celebrity gossip, even things like our finances and hobbies and even relationships. They seem small when compared to a creator God who is transcendent above all things. And this is what Cudup saw when he came to America. He saw a culture of people who gave their heart, their soul, their mind, and their strength to small and trivial things. And it led him to believe that we were now small and trivial people. And Psalm 95 doesn't just give us a cold command on how to worship God. It tells us why. You go, okay, great, I should ascribe glory to God. Okay, that's so vague. Why should I give glory to God? Did you read Psalm 95? Listen to the the attributes given to God himself in this psalm. Every command in this psalm is paired with an attribute of God. Sing. Why? Because he is the rock of our salvation. He's a great God, a great king. Bow down to him. Why? Because he's our maker. Listen to him. Why? Because he is our shepherd. The psalmist is trying to show you why God is the most valuable thing that you have. And when you recognize that worship is about ascribing value to, whom we, the, to the one whom is most valuable, it will then shape you and it will give you a new understanding of what worship is. Uh, years ago, I remember I was sitting in my best friend's living room. I was in my hometown and I went to go visit my best friend and his sister, his little sister had just returned from a trip to London and she came back and she had a bag full of her souvenirs and we're like, all right, let's see them, you know, and she's pulling out snow globes and she's pulling out cheesy t-shirts, you know, and she was like, oh yeah, here's some other things I found at this bookstore or this, there was a woman on the street that was selling, she had just a table out and she was selling used books and I got some really good books. Look what I got. And and we're looking through her books and we're like, oh, cool. This is awesome. And we found a a book of poems by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. And it was old school. Like, I mean, I was like, I bet this is a first edition. And so, you know, we open the book and we're looking to see if it's a first edition and we see a signature. And, you know, we we said, you know, hey, Julie, tell me, why'd you get this book? And she said, well, you know, I, I've always liked Longfellow's poems. It looked old. It looked cool. It might look cool on my shelf. It'd be fun to read one day. And, she, and then she was like, well, look what all these other things I got. And, and, and we're like, well, wait a second. Um, is this Longfellow? This Longfellow guy is a big deal, right? She's like, oh, yeah, he's a big deal. One of the great American poets to ever live. And she's like, why? Why, why are you so obsessed with Long, Longfellow? It's like, well, because his autograph is on the title page. And this is a first edition. And she immediately, like, I mean, just her jaw drops. And she snaps the book from our hands and she almost and she opens the thing and she sees that Longfellow's signature is in this first edition and she begins shaking and tears start welling up in her eyes. And she she I mean, she's just overcome. And she thought, I have a first edition copy with Longfellow's signature. He held this book in his hands. She later took it to be verified. Turns out it was legitimate. It was his signature and she got it appraised and the appraiser estimated that it's worth worth somewhere in the neighborhood of $30,000. 
And he told her that it is rapidly appreciating. And what was once just another book in the bottom of her suitcase is now her most prized possession. It used to sit at the bottom of a you know, suitcase and now it's wrapped up. It's in a box. It's probably in a safe. It's now her most prized possession because she realizes how valuable it is. And think about it. When you have something worth $30,000 sitting in your... I've got baseball cards that I thought one day would be... And Beanie Babies that I thought would be worth something one day. I was at my parents' house this week. I was like, I wonder what I could sell these baseball cards for. I looked it up. It's like, yo, 12 cents, you know. But when you have something of that kind of value, it changes the way you live. You have security now. It takes away some fear, doesn't it? You're secure. You got, you've got something that's worth something. If all else goes wrong, if you get unemployed, find yourself unemployed, you've got a backup plan. But it changes the way that, not only that, it changes the way she values that book. Now she takes great care of it. It's not something that sits on a shelf somewhere. It sits in a safe, wrapped in protective you know, stuff. And I think that is a good little parable for what worship is. Because for so many of us, the reason that our worship and our devotion to God is so superficial is because we don't recognize the value of the God we worship. We fail to recognize what we have in Christ. We have the very creator God, the one who formed us. The psalm here says the one who formed dry land with his hands, who made the sea and the stars and the sky. The one who loves us so much that he was willing to give up his son and die for us. The one who loves us so much that is currently right now preparing a place for us in heaven for all of eternity. The one who promises that he will judge all evil in this world and one day will make all things right. We have him as our God. But he often sits at the bottom of our suitcase, doesn't he? While we ooh and ah about trinkets and snow globes and trivialities. See, the depth of your worship will be in direct proportion to how valuable you understand God to be. How valuable do you recognize Christ himself to be to you? Today we sang it's the very breath in our lungs was given to us by God. You woke up this morning because God put breath in your lungs. Now, what is that? What is the breath in that lungs for? It's for worship. It's to be poured back out in praise to the one who gave you that breath. Now, what does worship do? What does worship bring? It says today, if you, this is a cautionary part of the psalm. It says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work for 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. The psalmist is talking about those who choose not to ascribe value to that which is most valuable, but they ascribe value to trivial things. And in the process, they lose sight of God. And this is what happens when your worship is misdirected. You do not experience rest. You'll experience restlessness when you worship your circumstances, when you fail to value God over your desires and preferences. The result will be unrest, restlessness. The psalmist says those who harden their hearts, who fail to worship God, those who fail to worship God will not enter into his rest. That's not Jesus saying if you fail to worship me, you're not allowed in. 
That's Jesus saying, if you fail to worship me, you are forfeiting that which worship brings, which is rest. And the reverse is true of those who do worship God. The end result of worship, ascribing ultimate value to the one who is most valuable, the result of that is that we will find rest. If we ascribe ultimate value to God himself, the result will be rest. I love what verse 7 tells us. It says, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. Anytime I hear shepherd language in the scriptures, what, do you, what psalm do you think I think of? Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. And that's such a cute phrase. And we've got that on coffee mugs and stitched on pillows and whatever. He makes me lie down in green pasture. But think about the depth of meaning behind that saying. The Lord is my shepherd. He makes me lie down. If you know anything about sheep, and I don't assume you do. We're New Yorkers. Not many sheep around here. But sheep are very scared animals. They're very timid. They're very frightful. They're very afraid. And they will not go to sleep if they're scared, much like my little kids. If they're scared of the monster under the bed, they're going to have a hard time sleeping. But sheep will not go to sleep if they are scared. They will not lie down to rest unless they are free from all fear. And when David says, he makes me lie down in green pastures, that isn't forceful. That isn't like God is like, I'm going to make you sheep lie down, you know, like kicking you over anything. It's not that it's it isn't punishment. It's God's grace dispelling all fear. To make a sheep lie down in green pasture is to take away their fear is to kill the cougar or the mountain lion that threatens them. And when Cudub looked when Saeed Cudub back to the first story I told when he looked at America, he saw people that were frantic He saw people that were consuming every trivial pleasure that they could get their hands on, hoping that something would give meaning to their lives. And what he saw was a country of people driven by restlessness. And that is American. That's the American ethos, isn't it? We're restless people. We're pursuing money and sexuality and pleasure all out of a sense of restlessness. We feel restless. We feel afraid. And we think that if we could get enough money, if we could get enough pleasure, if we could get enough this or that, then it would cure our restlessness and we could finally relax and lie down in the green pastures. But what happens? We keep chasing. 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 And it always slips through our fingers. The author of Ecclesiastes, the great teacher, said that we pursue sex, money, power, and pleasure. And it's something, it's like a vapor. We grab a hold of it and it just slips through our fingers. It gives us pleasure for a brief moment, but it can't give everlasting meaning to your life. And I want you to think for a moment just how different your life would be. How much rest would you have in your life if you truly and actually grasped the value of what you have in knowing God? You know what the Bible says about God, that he's good and that he's kind and that he's loving and that he'll never leave you and that he'll never forsake you and that he's your shepherd and that he's the lion who defeats the enemy and that he's the lamb who lays down his life for you. He's the rock of salvation. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He's the prince of peace. He's the wonderful counselor. You've heard those things, but how different would your life be if you actually believed those things? I think you would have much more rest and that's worship. See, my friend Julie is able to rest because she knows she has a safety net now. A first edition autographed Longfellow. She's able to take risks now in her life 
because she has possession of something that is valuable. And if you knew what you had in Christ, what risks could you take? If you knew what you had in Christ, how, how much easier would you sleep at night? If you knew what you had in Christ, how much uh, more, uh, uh, how would your ethics be different at work? You wouldn't be tempted to cut corners or cheat because you, you, I've already got what all I need in Christ. See, worship brings rest and rest b- brings the life that God has for us, which is to be conformed into the image of his son. How much more so, so should we find rest in knowing that we have, as Peter writes in 1 Peter, an inheritance that will never perish, spoil, or fade because we have a friend in Christ who is more valuable than anything we can comprehend or imagine. God is a good shepherd who casts out fear and leads us to a place where we can rest. One of my favorite songs that we always sing at Easter is Because He Lives. I can face tomorrow because he lives. All fear is gone because I know. Oh, he holds the future. My life is worth. The living just because he lives. Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary. Translation, worship me. Bring your worship to me, not on the trivial things. Find value in me, ascribe worth to me. And the promise is, I'll give you rest. And that's what we all want. Crossroads, I want us to be a church that avoids the superficiality of much of American culture and much of American churchianity. I want you, I want your devotional life not to be chasing after trivial feelings and experiences, but I want your entire life and your entire being, your heart, soul, mind, and strength to be rearranged by the glory of who God is. And for that to happen, we must become enthralled By the glory of God, the weight of God, we must ascribe glory to him because he is most glorious. I want us to be consumed with his weightiness in a way that rearranges all of who we are. And I'm convinced that if we were convinced of what we have in Christ, the value of what he has given us, we would not be superficial people. Because our hope would be in something more valuable than we ever realized. Would you pray with me about that this morning?